Well, let's pray before we turn to God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of prayer. And we thank you that we have this amazing um, gift that you've given to us that just as Moses went up the mountain to meet with you and to speak with you, we too have, uh, through Christ, that same access and privilege to speak with you. And I thank you that you um, hear our prayers and that you, um, that you would answer them in your grace and mercy. And I pray that through our studies in this series that we would uh, be a people, be a church who would seek to grow more in our prayer seek to um, honour you more and seek to have our prayers aligned with what we see in the Bible. And I pray for um, our time now as we look at your word in 1 Thessalonians. I pray that you would um, speak through me, give me um, grace and give me strength by your spirit. And may we all uh, have open minds and hearts to receive what you would have us to know and may. Uh, by your spirit, we be changed, each of us, um, to have prayer that is honouring you. And may we strive together um, to fight to have a fruitful life that honours you and gives you all the glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name, we ask and pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. Say a Christian friend were to ask you, is there anything I could pray for you? What would you say? Would your mind go blank? Would you feel embarrassed because you wouldn't know what to say and you feel you probably should? Would you desperately try and rack your brain trying to think of something to say to make you sound maybe more spiritual than you are? Would all the things that would come to your mind simply be, um, I have exams coming up or job is a bit hectic? Or do you simply say, um, I'm alright at the moment. I don't think I need any prayer. Our series, When Paul Prays, is taking us through some of Paul's New Testament letters to see what Paul himself actually prayed for. What are the important things that I should pray for? What are the important things that I should pray for others? What are the important things that I should ask others to pray for me? And what are the important things that I need prayer for every day that maybe I don't realise yet? Now before we look at 1 Thessalonians 1, and when we do that we'll just focus our time on the first three verses. Before we do that I want to draw your attention to something Paul writes to Timothy. So turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And hopefully this passage will shape the way you look at this series. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 8 and 10. 8 to 10. Paul writes this For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labour and suffer reproach. Because we trust in the living God, who is the saviour of all men, especially of those who believe. 
Now, in these few verses, do you see what Paul is saying here? This is Paul's continual mindset that he has. He's not being distracted by earthly or temporary things, but instead he's constantly looking to the things that have the most important value. He writes, for bodily exercise profits a little. So Paul's saying, there are so many things, there are so many people who are getting distracted by things of no value. They give all their energies, all their time, all their affections to these things that won't live past tomorrow. In this case, bodily exercise, but you can uh, fill in the blank. But, Paul says, godliness is profitable for all things. He's saying, that's what I've got my eyes on. The things that make you godly, the things that will make you more like Christ. That's what's most important for you to pursue. And why is godliness the most important thing? Why is it so infinitely important to pursue? Because godliness has promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Godliness doesn't just stop at the grave. Godliness benefits you now in the life that is and throughout eternity in the life that is to come. And Paul writes, for to this end, this goal of having godliness, we both labour and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God. So Paul here is saying, I'm going after this. I'm pursuing godliness and I'm labouring to have it, even if I suffer. Even if people say, Paul, you're crazy. You're wasting your life for going after this. Even if I suffer, I'm still going to go after it. Why, Paul? Because, he says, I'm trusting the living God that it is worth it. I'm trusting that it is so much better and sweeter and more pleasurable than all of the temporary things on this earth that profit a little. And I'm going after the things that profit much. Now, why do I mention this? Because when Paul writes, when Paul prays, he constantly has his eyes fixed upon the things that matter the most. Instead of constantly looking at things that don't profit, Paul constantly is fixing his eyes, fixing his gaze on things that do. The things that will matter most in your dying moments, the things that won't just stop at the grave but will last throughout your whole eternity. So when we read what Paul prays, we can be confident that this is important. This is something crucial to your Christian life, even if you don't see it as that yet. This is something that will make me more like Christ. This is something of value. This is something that is profitable for all things. And that's Paul's constant mindset. Now, considering that, if I were to bring Paul into the room today and he were to point at one of your Christian friends and say, yes, I see something in you that is good, that is profitable, that won't fade away. Surely that would cause you to sit up and go, what is that? What is that in their life that Paul sees that is good and profitable? What is that? Because I need it. Since Paul isn't distracted by temporary and worthless things, then whatever he sees in that person's life must be something worth more than gold. 
And you see, that's exactly what Paul does for us in 1 Thessalonians 1. He points out the good in these Thessalonian Christians. And he says, yes, I see something in you that is good, that is profitable. I see something in you that is worth infinitely more than any of these unprofitable things that we could get caught up in. And so when we read these passages, we can be confident that if we become like that, if we give our time and energies and affections to become like this, then it won't be a waste of time. It, it's the most profitable thing that we could ever do. So, let's find out what that is in the Thessalonians. Turn with me again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. What is it about them that Paul is so pleased with and so thankful for? 1 Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 1, reading to verse 3. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father. So what is it about the Thessalonian church that Paul looks at and says, yes, that is good, that is gain for you to have. It's their work of faith. It's their labor of love. It's their patience of hope. Now, if that doesn't already cause you to sit up and think, okay, what are those things? What, what, what does Paul mean when he's writing those things? How can I have them in my life? If that doesn't cause you to sit up and ask those questions, then maybe you don't see that. Maybe you don't see the true value in the things that Paul's writing. Maybe, you're, maybe you are one who gets caught up in those unprofitable things and doesn't see what is truly valuable. And I pray that by the time we're done that you will. Now before we consider those three things, their labor of love, their patience of hope, and their work of faith, don't you think it's strange what Paul writes in <clears throat> verses 2 and 3? Look again, he says, we give thanks to God always for your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope. Paul's giving thanks to God for something the Thessalonians have done. Now, this week was my mum's birthday, so I bought her a present. And she said something like, thank you for giving me this present. Now, why would she say that? Because I have decided to give her a present. It was something I had thought of, something I had bought with my own money, something I had given to her, and so she says, thank you for your gift. And so it wouldn't make sense if she said, I give thanks to your dad for you giving me this gift. So why does Paul give thanks to God for something the Thessalonians have done? It's their work that Paul is talking about. So why doesn't he say, thank you Thessalonians? Or why doesn't he say, congratulations to all the church? Why is Paul's first thought to thank God? Well, it's because the good he sees in them 
isn't because of them. The work that the Thessalonians are doing is done by them, but it's not from them. It doesn't originate with them. It originates with God. Remember what we looked at last week in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1 verse 11, Paul's writing and says, I pray that you will be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. You see, you have no strength in yourself to be holy. You have no ability in yourself to be filled with the, fruit, the fruits of righteousness. It's only by Christ Jesus, by his work in you, that you can be righteous and holy. And Paul writes a similar thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, Paul writes, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. But I laboured more abundantly than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. See, Paul says, I laboured, I worked, yet not I. It wasn't my strength at work, Paul says. So where did the strength come from? He says, the grace of God which was with me. That's what gave him the strength to do it. And what is the grace of God? It's the loving favour and goodwill of God which leads him to treat us better than we deserve and to give us something, to give us strength, give us wisdom, give us salvation. And that's why Paul constantly opens his letter saying, grace to you, may the grace of God be with you. Because he knows that without that, we can do nothing as Christians. We need the grace of God, the enabling power of his spirit to do these good works that he has for us to do. Now, I've already mentioned that it was my mum's birthday this week, but a few months before my mum was born, scripter Larry Lieber, artists Don Heck and Jack Kirby, working together with the writer Stan Lee, created a new character for their comic book company back in 1963. He was a genius billionaire scientist and weapons manufacturer named Tony Stark otherwise known as the Marvel superhero Iron Man. Now, in his first comic appearance, after being kidnapped by a terrorist group, Tony Stark was forced to create weapons for his captors, but instead he created a powered suit that enabled him to defeat the terrorists and escape, and so he became Iron Man. Now, without that armour, Tony Stark is just an ordinary man. If he steps out on the battlefield, he doesn't last 10 seconds. But with the armour, he has the power and strength to do things that he could not do alone. Now, he can't just put the armour on and sit back and say, the suit will do the work. No, he has to act, he has to move, he has to fight. But it's the power of the armour that enables him to fight. Christian, without the grace of God in your life, without the goodness of God giving you the strength that you need through the Holy Spirit, you can do nothing as a Christian. It's God's power that works in us, not our own. You have to act 
And you have to move, you have to fight, you have to work and labor, endure. But it's God's gracious power within you that enables you to do so and enabled the Thessalonians to do so. So, the Thessalonians have a work of faith, a labor of love, a patience of hope. And Paul looks at that and says, gain. That is infinite gain to you if you have that. So, what do these things actually mean? That's a good question to ask. Work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope. They sound like nice Christian things, but what actually is it if I have the work of faith in my life? What does that look like? What does that mean? It's a great question. So let's start with the first, their work of faith. What does Paul mean when he prays to give thanks for the work of faith that he sees in the Thessalonians? What kind of work is he talking about? Well, the are a number of places in the Bible you could turn to to help answer that question, but we'll just look at one. Um, Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 12 to verse 17. You can turn there in your Bibles, or it'll be up on the screen. Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, Paul writes, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. That's your work of faith. As you go about your day and interact with people, your work of faith is to treat people with the compassion and grace that God has shown you in Christ. To show others the same tender mercies that God has given to you. Kindness, Paul writes. Maybe tomorrow you'll see someone who treats you badly. Your work of faith is to show kindness to them. Humility. When you are thinking about how you spend your time, your work of faith is to prefer the needs of others above your own. Meekness. As you perform well or do something good, your work of faith isn't to boast about your own achievements or to slip them into conversation, but to be content living in the audience of one and knowing God sees. Long-suffering. As you deal with someone that you just can't stand. Your work of faith is to be patient with them, bearing with one another. When someone annoys you or sins against you, your work of faith is remembering that actually the biggest sinner in the room is you. And for all the flaws that you see in this person, your work is remembering that there are hundreds of ways in which you sin, and you're just as a guilty sinner as they are, And so your work is bearing with them and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. If someone has sinned against you, your work is to remember all that God has done for you in giving you life and air and ultimately dying, sending Christ to die in your place to secure your forgiveness. Remembering all that Christ has done for you and so your work is then to forgive others. Even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. Skip down to verse 16. Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. If you see someone going the way they shouldn't go, 
then your work of faith is to teach, admonish, to bring them back to God, to point them back to the Bible. So that's the kind of work that Paul is talking about. But where does faith come into it? How does it, how is it a work of faith? Because anyone can show kindness. You don't have to be a Christian to show kindness. So what's the difference? What makes a work a work of faith? Well, it's verse 17 of Colossians 3. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 10, which says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's verse 13 of Philippians 2, which says, It is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do you see the extra element there? A work of faith is one that is done by you, yes, but here's the difference. It's done by you, by the power of God, for the pleasing of God, to give glory to God. It's a work that is not done and performed in your own strength, but in the strength that God's grace gives you. And so you lean upon that strength and you trust in that strength and then do the work that he has for you to do. Because it can be hard to show forgiveness. It can be hard to show humility. And we need the strength of God to do it. So it's a work that's filled with faith in God to give the strength that we need and so to glorify himself through it and show himself as great. So it's not a futile or pointless work. It's a faith-filled work that results in God being displayed as great. And this is what Paul sees in the Thessalonians. This is what he looks at and says, I see this work of faith in you and it's good and it will endure. It will continue after the grave. It's profitable for all things. It's worth infinitely more than all that this world could give. Do you pray this for yourself? That you would see the same thing in you? Do you pray this for others? The people around you here? The second thing that Paul sees in the Thessalonian Christians is their labour of love. You see, it's love that gives rise to and produces labour. And so the reason that you labour is because of a love that is in you. John 14, verse 15, the words of Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, so many read that verse and conclude, loving Jesus is keeping his commandments. Keeping commandments is boring. Therefore, loving Jesus is boring. Maybe that's what you think. But that's not what the verse says. Look at it again. Jesus is saying, if you love me, firstly, if you love me, before anything else, if you love me, then you'll do this other thing called keeping my commandments. You see, loving Jesus for who he is and all that he has done is foundational to your life as a Christian because from that flows your obedience, flows your fruitfulness. 
And the whole point of laboring for Christ is that you do it because you already have a deep-rooted love for him. You see his value and worth above all other things. And so you fight against your desires for the pleasures of sin. And you fight for desiring the pleasures of God above all other things. And so it's not a cold, begrudging labor. It's a love-filled labor. And Paul says, this is profitable. Do you want this? Do you see the value of this? Do you pray for it in yourself? And do you give thanks to God when you see this in other people? Now, the third thing that Paul sees is their patience of hope. Now, a better word, perhaps, for that word patience, which you'll find in many of your Bibles, is the, uh, which is the Greek word um, hippomonos, is the word endurance or steadfastness. So it's a hope within you that gives rise to and produces an endurance. It's because of the hope that you have that you endure. Well, what is that hope? Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Why? Because we have a hope looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. See, we have the strength to endure because we have an eternal hope that is set before us, that Christ has secured in the face of fear, in the face of temptation, in the face of ridicule, the face of suffering, persecution, loss. We endure, knowing that Christ first put the spark of faith in you and that he will keep and guard that faith until you pass from time into eternity and you see him face to face. So it's not a blind, pointless enduring. It's a hope-filled endurance. And so those are the three things that Paul sees in the Thessalonian church. He looks at them and he sees the inward roots that they have, namely faith, love and hope. And they're felt in their hearts, they're felt, it's felt in their minds. And then that sparks, that overflows into an outward fruit, namely work, labor, endurance. And that's why he rejoices. That's why he gives thanks for them when he prays. He says, yes, these aren't pointless things. These are worth infinitely more than anything this world can give. There's nothing more valuable than having these things in your life. And so, Paul says, I give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in my prayers, remembering without ceasing this amazing work of faith, this labor of love and endurance of hope, which are all rooted in our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice in verse 2, Paul gives thanks for all of them. This isn't just one or two super Christians in the church who are living like this. This is the whole church that is putting their lives into this. So, how are you doing? Is this what your life looks like? Do you look at these Thessalonians and say, I want my life to look like that. This is something that I want. Or is this something that you don't even realize you need? Are you striving to make your life look like this? Because this is what is profitable. 
This is what is worth more than having gold. Or are you content with just what's good enough? My dad made the same point last week. See, maybe you're sitting here and thinking, why do I need to bother being this on point with the Christian life? You say that I need this, but I'm a Christian without it. Why do I have to strive to be the best sort of Christian I can be? I know there are rewards and blessings, but I can take or leave them. I've got heaven. I've got forgiveness. And I'm fine with that, thank you. Picture a husband and wife. The husband says, why do I have to strive to be the best sort of husband I can be? I know that there are joys and pleasures to be found in my wife, but I'm still married without all that. So I'm fine, thank you. If a husband said that, what would that tell you about the depth of the love he has for his wife? If that is the attitude of your heart towards these things, then what does that tell you about the depth of the faith, of the love, of the hope that you say is in you? You see, James writes... In James chapter 2, verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. When James says dead, he means it's superficial, it's useless, it's meaningless, it has no depth. What does it tell you about the depth of your faith if you have no works? What does it tell you about the depth of your love if you have no labor? What does it tell you about the depth of your hope if you have no endurance? You think you don't need this every day. So here's one one question to reveal the attitude of your heart towards these things. What have you done since last Sunday? This past week, have you given a single thought to last week's sermons? What have you done with this past week? And I don't mean I went to school or I went to work. I mean, what have you worked on this past week? Maybe you take notes on Sunday, but then end of Sunday, they sit on the shelf untouched until the next week. Or have you poured over your notes this week, reading through, praying, God, help me be like this. Help me put this into my life. Help my prayers become more what they ought to be. You see, when you die, you will stand before God. Imagine he were to ask you about this last week. Earth is gone, and all that is before you is eternity. And God asks you about this last week. If you say, I worked hard, I revised every night, I worked on my car, I worked on my garden, I worked on my exercise, I worked on my fantasy team, I worked on decorating my house. That won't matter one bit compared to saying, I worked on my character this week. I worked on making myself more like you this week. So are you someone who is caught up in giving all your time and all your affections, all your energies to things that won't live past tomorrow? 
Bodily exercise, Paul said, profits a little. But godliness is profitable for all things. Having promise of the life that is now and of that which is to come. So what are you striving for? Are you striving for godliness? For Christ-likeness? Maybe you're young and you think, I don't need to strive for that yet. Faith-filled work, love-filled labor, hope-filled endurance. I can be like that when I'm a more mature Christian. I don't have to worry about that now. Or maybe you're old. And you've been a Christian for decades and you think you've peaked and now it's coasting to heaven. But you're both on the same battlefield. You both still face the same things. There are still bullets of temptation and struggles and trials and suffering that fly your way every day. Whether you're a novice or a veteran, you're still on the battlefield Whether you became a Christian six months ago or 60 years ago, you both need to fight. Leaning on and trusting in the strength that God gives. Fighting against our desires for the pleasures of sin. And fighting for desiring God above all things. And that's the key. What do you desire ultimately? Because what you desire is what you pursue. So what do you desire? What will you pursue? Will you waste your life and chase after these temporary things that profit nothing? Or will you join Paul and join the Thessalonians in desiring God above all things, fixing your eyes on the things that have infinite value? Will you join them in working in faith? Laboring in love, enduring in hope, because there truly is nothing greater. Whatever the world may offer, great pleasures of dark sin, there is no pleasure sweeter than walking close with him. The siren song of evil, the lust and pride of life, I count them all as worthless compared to knowing Christ. He satisfies my longings with matchless joy untold. More joy than broken cisterns could ever hope to hold. Give strength, Lord, in my weakness, so I may daily fight to flee from sin's seductions and find in you delight. What will you delight in this week? What will you strive for this week? Will you fight for fruitfulness? I pray that you will. Pray for me. Pray that I will. And together, may we be a church that looks like the Thessalonian church, who has a love-filled labor and a faith-filled work. And so, a hope-filled endurance that leads us to the end of our lives that aren't wasted. And so when we pass from time into eternity and we stand before God, he looks at us and says, well done.
good and faithful servant. Let's stand and sing.